Hello and welcome to Birkbeck Voices, the monthly podcast from Birkbeck University of London. I'm Andrew Youngson. Each month we're out and about capturing the energy of the college by speaking to academics, students and members of staff. This edition, the first of 2016, Happy New Year by the way, we're taking an inside look at BBK Magazine. What's a BBK Magazine you ask? Well, to help explain, I'm joined by the editor himself, Henry Romans. Welcome to the podcast, Henry. Thank you very much, Andrew. It's great to be here. To jump straight in, what is a BBK when it's at home? Well, BBK is the college's flagship magazine, which comes out once every year, looking at the previous 12 months and the high points for the college uh, in that period. Um, It goes to over 45,000 people, alumni, friends, supporters of the college, and we also use it to showcase the best of what Birkbeck has to offer to people that might not know so much about what we do. So that covers off part of the main aim of BBK. What other aims are there in its remit? What's it here to do? Well, the magazine really is there to showcase the very best of what Birkbeck has to offer. Um, We want to entertain, educate and inform um, anyone that picks it up and and get a real sense of what Birkbeck is about and what's been going on at the college in the last 12 months. Um, Because we have such a wide uh, audience for the magazine, like I talked about earlier, we have three main sections to, to the publication. We have a section firstly looking at the previous year at the college, the last 12 months and what the, what the high points of that have been. We have a section dedicated to research and teaching at the college, so looking at some of the most impressive research or most interesting or indeed entertaining research that has come out of the college in the last year. And finally, we have a section dedicated to the college community, so that might be looking at um, news from our alumni, um, significant figures from the college, so for example in this edition we look at the legacy of Rosalind Franklin who was a very important part of the college many years ago. New fellows that have joined the college and any important alumni news as well because one of the main things that we know about the magazine is people really like to know what their contemporaries have done since leaving the college. It sounds like it's a mixture of um, reviewing 2015 while also being quite in-depth and and, and um, exploratory of areas of the research that we do. And I, I'm just kind of wondering, what differentiates it from being an annual review? Well, yes, BBK does look back, but I would also say it looks forward as well. There's a lot in the magazine that we do to, to really engage people that are part of the college community or maybe looking at what the college community offers them. So, for example, we're already very conscious the college is coming up to its 200th anniversary in 2023. And in this edition, uh, we have uh, a feature looking at the the college's legacy over the last nearly 200 years and actively looking forward to that anniversary and seeking contributions from the college community and further afield in in how we can celebrate that. So looking back, yes, but also looking very much to the future and, and the year ahead and the years ahead. So it sounds like there's a lot of work goes into this each year. Can you give us a bit of an idea behind the scenes of what it actually takes to pull together a magazine like this? Well, really, the process of putting the magazine together starts as soon as the previous one has finished. So we're constantly going out to alumni of the college, friends of the college, researchers seeking their stories, trying to find out what people are doing, what people have experienced by coming to the college, either students who are still here or alumni that have left and maybe have 10, 20, 30 years um, behind them and seeing what coming to Birkbeck has given them as a, as a legacy. So we're always undertaking that process of finding stories and thinking what might be really interesting for a reader, what might be interesting to the community. 
what might be interesting to someone that maybe is less familiar with the college about the very best that we offer. Brilliant. That sounds good. And thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Henry Rummins there, editor of BBK Magazine. Now, before I forget, listeners at home can download a digital copy of the magazine and editions from previous years at www.bbk.ac.uk forward slash about dash us forward slash BBK. But before you rush off to do just that, here's the rest of the podcast. To give a behind the scenes look at some of the new editions key articles, I've been speaking to some main spotlight players. So first up, as ever, it's Research Focus. The cover story of this year's BBK is dedicated to Dr Rosalind Franklin, the pioneering crystallographer who, before her years researching at Birkbeck, played a major part in the discovery of the structure of life itself, the DNA double helix. While all but forgotten in the history books, Dr Franklin's legacy has finally been thrust into the spotlight thanks to Photograph 51, a theatrical production run in London's West End late last year featuring none other than Nicole Kidman in the central role of Rosalind. During the play's 11-week run on the stage, thousands of audience members learned of Dr Franklin's life, from her lasting impact on the biological sciences to her untimely death in 1958, aged only 37. The following are some extracts from my interview for the BBK article with Photograph 51's playwright, Anna Ziegler, who was speaking down the line from her home in Brooklyn, New York. Here, Anna begins with how she was initially drawn to Rosalind's story. I was uh, I was living in Washington D.C. at the time. This is about eight years ago, okay. and um, I was uh, commissioned by a small theater company to write a play about three female scientists, um, and one of them was Rosalind Franklin. I, I didn't know very much about any of the scientists they asked me to write about. Who were the other um, of interest? Um, Rachel Carson and um, and Roger Young, who was. I think the first African American woman to get a, a PhD in biology okay. um, in the states, um, and so I wrote this play about all three of them, and um, and in doing so, uh, you know, discovered Rosalind basically, and and kind of fell in love with the character, and really felt that she deserved her own play, and yeah. so I, you know, I asked the commissioning theater if I could redo the assignment, and um, and. Uh, uh, they said yes, which was yeah. lucky, and um, and then I, and then I, um, and then I did that. And I would say what drew me, what drew me to her immediately was yeah. was how complicated, um, was how complicated she was, how kind of independent and willful and um, and obviously, I mean, obviously, incredibly intelligent, um, yeah. but uh, but also someone who was apt to get in her own way a bit, um, yeah. and uh, and 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 who was a both a product of of her time, um, and also, I mean, I, I guess whose personality was kind of um, created or yeah, kind of a product of the time, but also her own obstacle, and all yeah. all of those threads seemed seemed sort of interesting to try to untangle. Well, what do you think Nicole kind of has really, you know, brought out of the character or, or the, the, the things that you, you know, that you sewed there in the, in, the, in the script? What things do you feel particularly pleased with what she, she has pulled out and, and cultivated? Well, I mean, I think what she has succeeded in doing is creating a fully fleshed out human being. I mean, I've seen a lot of, of actresses play this role and... Um, 
and and certainly some others who have been wonderful. But I but I think a trap that one can fall into is sort of just playing the incredible or the you know the coldness the yeah. the um, sort of dissidence of Rosalind. And and I think with Nicole, what she does amazingly is you can sort of she does that, but you can see underneath it. Um, and uh, and and there are certainly moments where she lets that you know there's a kind of like light in her eyes that shows you um, a different part of her soul and I and I think that that's you know there it's a it's, it's a it's a it's a huge skill um, to uh, to be able to I think show an audience um, not only the different sides of a character but sort of you know what the what's inside the character that they're that they're essentially sort of covering up with with a certain um, facade. Yeah. By, ne- by necessity. The, I mean, you're saying that you know you're very clear in what um, what you think Rosalind wasn't. Um, you know, talking about victimization <laughs> there. What to yeah. you? What to you definitively is she? You know, if you had to, to describe her on you know, right in the back of a, a cigarette packet, what what is she to you? I mean, I, I think that she was able to do work at an incredibly high level. Um, at a time when it was very hard for women to be doing that kind of work, and um, and and you know, made I mean, obviously, I think very important contributions to science and um, humankind. So I guess I would just say she was an you know an important scientist, but also um, I mean, I I hugely admire her. You know, it, it's very it, it's very easy to. Um, be shut down by the obstacles one sees around you, and she either didn't see them at all, they didn't exist to her, or she ignored them, and, and, um, and, you know, and as a result was able to do, you know, her best work, but I, but I mean, I think at the same time, it, I mean, it's hard, it's hard for me to say what she was, but I mean, it's hard to, to uh, separate that from what she wasn't, because I think that those, the same qualities that allowed her to do that, um, the, you know the qualities, the sort of independence and stubbornness, yeah. um, were were the same ones that that actually stopped her from getting even farther in science. Because yeah. you know, at least at least in the at least the Rosalind I know in my play, you know, was not could not collaborate with the with the with the people that um, you know that might have enabled her to be part of the greatest discovery of yeah. the century. Um, and and yeah, just just lastly, I mean, how how do you think she would want to be remembered? I mean, I, I think everyone says, and I, I believe this must be true, that she would just want to be remembered for her work, yeah. not and not as not as a not as a woman in science, just as someone who did work at a very high level. Yeah. Um, and I think that you know, she was fascinated by uncovering some of the mysteries of the world, and she and she did that. Um, she got to do what she wanted to do in her life. That was playwright Anna Ziegler talking about Photograph 51, her play about the inspirational Birkbeck scientist Dr Rosalind Franklin. Next up is the Birkbeck People slot. In our Birkbeck Means Business feature article, we hear from two of the college's entrepreneurial students and how they're being supported in their endeavours by Birkbeck. To find out more, I caught up with Fiona Button, one of the highlighted students who is currently innovating an educational product. My name's Fiona Button. I'm studying for a Master's for an MSc in Educational Neuroscience here at Birkbeck. 
Uh, it's a two-year master's program part-time and I'm focusing particularly on uh, the neural mechanisms underlying dyslexia and reading and spelling difficulties. I set up uh, my own company called Button Learning at the middle of last year, so June 2015. Uh, when I started my master's degree I specifically wanted to use it as a launchpad for starting my company as well. Uh, the idea behind Button Learning is that we develop uh, better educational resources for uh, children but also adults who are struggling with literacy or are simply going through their normal school journey. We're currently in a product development phase so I'm using the research that I'm doing for my master's degree uh, to uh, verify my ideas that have come from my professional experience as to what helps people learn better. So I've taught adult literacy for about 10 years now and I have lots of ideas around the way that you might do that better but uh, before I took my degree these were mostly professional hunches or uh, things that had come about from my own teaching experience and I wanted to actually verify and test whether these were applicable to a wider population. So my idea behind launching the company is that it's based on uh, robust evidence-based uh, research not just my whims as a teacher and there are a lot of resources out there that are based on, on individual whims so the idea behind this company is that it's very firmly based in uh, robust research and we can prove that these methods, these techniques, these approaches actually help a wide range of people um, and are better than the resources and the techniques and the approaches that, that people are using at the moment. I first had this idea about 10 years ago but it was actually starting my degree that made me turn it into a reality and that was essentially by uh, accessing the resources that are available but the first step was writing a business plan, in effect, which was not a very good business plan to start with, but it got me in touch with um, several people at Birkbeck, which, which helped me to refine my ideas. Um, I identified my weaknesses. Um, my, my, the major weaknesses that I had no independent verification that my ideas worked. It was simply my ideas. So this has led me down a path to being uh, much more rigorous in testing my ideas. Um, I'm having some data that shows that they work. Um, also, I didn't have a technology partner, which was one of the major problems that I faced. I, it was essentially a digital idea, but it had no, I didn't have a digital component to my company. So uh, through a networking event, I met another person who uh, runs a software business, and he's helped me work out what I need to do for my next steps for actually turning into a software product or an app. The main areas of support were um, I wrote a business plan and I entered it into a competition through Birkbeck and that I got down to the national finals, I got down to the last 10. It helped me to start to make the connections that I needed to find the people I needed to put together to, to actually build a team and make the business a reality, which if you're working on your own, um, you're never going to get there. You've always got to find other people to work with, people who can help you, people who can guide you. I'm currently testing my resources in schools. Once I've done the tests, I will gather the data that I need to prove that the idea is, is, is worth pursuing, that it's worth developing. Uh, I've also found another technology partner, a second um, company who build uh, very similar apps 
on a different platform who will help me develop the technological solution that I need. So these two things together, um, I hope by the middle of the year, so within the next six months, are going to enable me to successfully raise a little bit more money to develop the product and actually get it to market. The thing I find very motivating is I think what any any teacher would acknowledge is the moment when a, a pupil, be it a child or an adult, doesn't understand something and suddenly the, the penny drops and their eyes light up and they realise that they can do something that they couldn't do before. And I think I think every teacher has had a few of those moments and they're incredibly gratifying and that is what motivates you as a teacher. My mission is to make those moments happen more often with more people because I think if you teach people differently and you teach them possibly better you're going to reach more people and I think that's incredibly exciting and I think with the combination of you know what we're learning through through neuroscience and with the possibilities of digital technology it's it's going to get a lot easier for people to learn better. Uh, when I started on this uh, process and decided that I want to set up my own company I thought that having a really good idea that nobody else had had was the most important thing, and that's what I felt I had. And what I've realised in the last year and a half, um, since actually actively developing this this business, is that that is probably only 50% of what you need. Uh, What's equally important is uh, finding other people to work with because nobody nobody has the complete skill set. I certainly don't. And you have to find other people to work with. And until you find those people, you don't make that much progress. And I think the second thing you need is um, an ability to uh, communicate to people why your idea is exciting because it's all very well having a wonderful idea, but actually you've got to be able to to talk about it. So I think the, and the people who do succeed as entrepreneurs are the ones who can take a good idea and, and, and make it a reality. It's all very well having a good idea, but if you sit in your bedroom for 10 years doing nothing about it, it's never going to happen. So I think getting out there, making contacts, forming a network, uh, talking to the people that you need to talk to to get the skills that you don't have. You need to be passionate about your idea. You need to believe in your idea. And of course, that goes without saying, really, if you don't think that what you're doing is the most important thing in the world and it can change the world, then you're probably not going to find the energy and the motivation to, to, to keep going with it. But I think if you do have an idea that bugs you and that you can't get out of your system and that you really want to make happen, then I think that's a good basis for getting started because you're ready then. If you, if, if you really it, you become something you have to do, it becomes inevitable. And so you've just got to find a way of, of doing it, and that's, that's the point that I'm at now. Birkbeck student Fiona Button there on her educational enterprise, Button Learning. Find out more at buttonlearning.com. And now on to our last section of the podcast. It's the calendar. An exhibition running throughout the winter at London's Jewish Museum has highlighted some of the fascinating work coming out of Birkbeck's Pears Institute for the Study of Antisemitism. Titled Blood, the exhibition draws together art, film and literature to present a rich exploration of how blood can unite and divide. Add to this the exhibition's accompanying book, and we the audience get a rich insight into this topic through the lens of Jewish religion, culture and history. I spoke to a leading figure behind the exhibition, book and BBK magazine article, Professor David Feldman, director of the Pears Institute, about the main themes explored. Okay, welcome to the podcast, David. Thank you very much for joining us. Um, We're here to talk about blood, Um, to, to get straight to the point. 
from the piece that uh, is in BBK at the moment, um, it talks a lot about the historical significance of blood as a marker of shared humanity and difference. Mm -hmm. Why is it as an approach of uh, research investigation, is this an important one? As you say, um, what we're interested in is not so much blood as the fluid that courses through our veins and arteries, but the meanings which people have ascribed to blood through history. And if we look at religious texts, medical texts, scientific texts, or literary texts, we can see that the meanings given to blood proliferate, above all, as, um, as a marker of, of difference and of similarity. So on the one hand, blood is something that we all have, so it can be seen as a marker of universality. But we also often think of ourselves as members of um, communities of descent. And blood um, is often seen as a marker of those sorts of uh, uh, particularities whether in terms of um, medieval medical texts in which blood, I mean, which semen was seen as the foam of blood. So the, uh, um, uh, to that extent, the production of life was mediated by blood, or in terms of 19th and early 20th century science, when uh, communities of difference were seen in terms of race, and race was often expressed in terms of differences of blood. I can see that would, why that would be a, a, a rich stream of investigation, why that would lead to so many areas, and it must be difficult to, to keep it boundaried um, when, when you're uh, actually comes to putting pen to paper, or, or as we'll come to later, um, uh, curating an exhibition mm -hmm. as well. Um, in the context then of, of the relations between Christians and Jews, what does this kind of approach reveal, you know, such as, for example, you know, the significance of blood in each faith, um, how it has underlying conflicts? Um, what, what does it show in that context? I think there are two dimensions to this, which the book and the exhibition is interested in. One is the way in which blood is a recurrent theme in Jewish ritual whether uh, we think about circumcision or uh, methods of animal slaughter or rituals concerned with menstruation. So that's one set of themes. Alongside that, though, there is the way in which the theme of blood recurs in relations between Jews and Christians. And I think to understand that, we need to look at the role of blood in ideas, of, in ideas about sacrifice. Um, in biblical Judaism, um, there's um, the sacrifice of animals plays a role, an important role, in atonement for sin. Christianity takes this idea of sacrifice and atonement but concentrates it in the figure of the crucified Christ. So 
the idea of blood and sacrifice points both to a continuity but a crucial difference between Christianity and Judaism. And of course this difference becomes still more problematic within the Christian tradition which then blames the Jews for, the, for Christ's crucifixion and death. And then this idea of blame gets in the Middle Ages, it gets um, um, bound up in, in, in maligned stories that are told about Jews, that they take Christian children, supposedly, and kill them for their blood, which is then used for strange ritual purposes by Jews, or that Jews take pleasure in, in torturing the Eucharist. So blood has played this very important role in, in conflict between Christians and Jews. How does that uh, apply to a contemporary context? Um, you know, what, what significance does, does, does blood, blood play in this relationship today? Uh, today, blood plays a number of different roles. First of all, Jews continue to think of themselves in many ways, and are thought of by others as a community of dissent. And insofar as communities of dissent are still thought of through the metaphor of blood, then that remains an important theme. Blood libel, the idea that Jews kill Christian children for pleasure or for ritual purposes, still circulates in parts of the world, in particular in parts of the Middle East. And also in the West, um, and this is a point of uh, controversy and interpretation, when the um, Israeli defence forces um, kill Palestinian children, this is sometimes represented in ways which um, some commentators argue is, um, um, is reminiscent of um, accusations of blood libel, that Jews are killing um, non-Jewish children for pleasure or for the hell of it, um, in a vengeful sort of um, in a vengeful sort of way. So the, uh, the idea is still alive, and of course um, uh, the idea of blood marking communities of uh, descent um, is remarkably um, t uh, tenacious um, um, in our culture. One of the artefacts in the exhibition at the Jewish Museum is a, a card encouraging um, Americans in the Second World War to uh, give blood. Uh, and the card says, Protestant blood, Catholic blood, Jewish blood, it's all American blood. So this seems to, to suggest that blood is a great universal. Yet if one digs a bit deeper, one discovers that the American Red Cross segregated white blood, as it were, from black blood in, in the, in the um, Second World War. So the significance of blood, um, that's an example, I think, of the way in which the significance of blood has retained its power, mm. uh, um, uh, even in recent times. It's incredible. The, 
Um, the article that's in BBK is a sneak peek into this this, uh, this broader picture of activity that you've been um, uh, it's been rolling out from this area of investigation. So there's um, the book that comes out of that, which I'll put a link to in the podcast um, uh, notes below. Plus, there's also the exhibition at the Jewish Museum. Overall, what are the aims of these uh, areas of activity, the, these items? The aim of the exhibition. I think, was to present some of these rather difficult ideas uh, for a wide public. And um, it, it was a real pleasure and extremely rewarding working with the Jewish Museum on, on this. It's a very ambitious exhibition because it's an exhibition which is based around an idea. So I think I mean, it works very well because I think of the skill of the museum's curator, Joe Rosenthal, in finding artefacts which can illustrate the ideas which we're playing with, these ideas around difference and similarity and the ways in which that has been thought of through the idea of blood. In the book, we develop these themes through seven essays by leading academics who look at the role of blood and the significance given to blood in theological, literary and scientific work through the centuries, in particular in relation to uh, to Christians and Jews. Um, It's not that the book presents a single line, it rather illustrates that this is such a rich field for reflection from many points of view. And lastly, how, how have they both been received? We're aware, you know, on our side of the of the campus, how well it's been received. But from your perspective, how have both been picked up? Um, I've been delighted by the reception. I mean, I think the um, book has been extremely well received. Um, interestingly, both by people working in the sciences and in the humanities. And the um, exhibition has been unanimously well reviewed so it's been a um, it's been a fantastic venture as far as um, as far as i'm concerned thank you very much it's been a pleasure david feldman there on the blood exhibit which runs at the jewish museum until the 28th of february the accompanying book blood reflections on what unites and divides us can be purchased online at pearsinstitute.bbk.ac.uk. That's P-E-A-R-S institute.bbk.ac.uk. And that's it for this special edition of Birkbeck Voices. Thanks for listening, and if you'd like to get in touch about the podcast, just drop us a line at communications at bbk.ac.uk. See you later.